issue about the the U3 headline unemployment rate is that to be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively seeking work and currently available to actually start work. Those are the parameters. Well, is the unemployment rate declining because people are just exiting, actively looking for work? Or is it declining because people are actually getting jobs? And I'm carrying the torch for Scott Winship, an economist at the Joint Economic Committee, who did some research and created what he calls the U5B, and what I'm describing as the comprehensive unemployment rate, because it covers everyone who says they want a job, regardless of conditions. And so it's the highest that you could say the unemployment rate possibly is. And it adds one additional layer of understanding to the labor market. Welcome to What's on Tap of the Mercatus Policy Download. As always, I'm your host, Chad Reese, and I'm here with Kate Delanoy to talk about two of our favorite things, what's going on at Mercatus this week, and a beer of the week. Kate, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Chad. Uh, just so you know, we have picked out this week Holy Moses, the raspberry white ale from Great Lakes Brewing. I am very excited about this. I have had a lot of Great Lakes, and I love them, but I have not had this. I am glad to hear that. I took your feedback from our last What's on Tap segment into account, so I decided to go the opposite direction uh, of an IPA and go with something that I hope is a little bit sweeter. And there's a lot going on here at Mercatus, too. Well, as I am pouring... Yes, we've got a lot of exciting things going on. The thing that I'm probably most excited about is a new paper from our scholar, Chuck Blahouse. So as you know, Chuck is a senior research fellow here, but previously he was the public trustee for Social Security and Medicare. So I'm guessing that whatever he's got coming out is about Social Security and or Medicare. Yes. Bingo. So Senator Sanders has his Medicare for all plan. And so what Chuck has done is gone in, crunched the numbers and looked at what would this cost if we were to actually implement this plan starting today over the next 10 years? And can we give our listeners a hint of what that number looks like? I'm going to hold that for now because that is a uh, really the meat of the paper, but I can tell them it's big. <laughs> okay. So look for that from uh, Chuck and we'll be talking about that with a lot of our folks. The other thing um, that I really enjoyed reading this weekend was an op-ed from Michael Farron and uh, Jennifer Huddleston's keys. They had an op-ed in USA Today talking about how autonomous vehicles are going to make the road trips of the future so much better. I'm on board. I know. I am heading to the beach uh, over the weekend and already dreading the 95 traffic. So I don't know if you have better experiences with road trips. No, I was about to say, I just got back from a road trip from Kentucky, and I think the entire eastern half of the United States was experiencing storms at the time. So I would definitely prefer someone else to do the driving for me. Definitely. Well, they say it's going to make it safer, easier. We just need to give folks time to really innovate and, you know, really use permissionless innovation to figure out how can we make driving and traveling safer in the future. Well, I'm sold. And what outlet was that in? That was at USA Today. Sounds good. Well, I am optimistic to hear your thoughts on this beer. I really like this. This is a great summer beer. I I like the raspberry. I you know, it's got a sweetness, but it's not it's not overly sweet. I am glad to hear that. So this is Great Lakes has a normal white ale. This is the raspberry version of that. So you get a little bit of tartness in with the normal kind of sweet coriander, uh traditional white ale notes. So it's not as like cloyingly sweet maybe as as some of the others of this this variety. Yes. That that can be the biggest problem with a a fruit beer. This is a good balance. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go high here. I'm going to give this a 425 out of 5. I think I'm going to give it a 4.5. 
Great. Well, very popular beer, Holy Moses from Great Lakes Brewing, exciting papers from Chuck Blahouse, and an exciting op-ed from a couple of our folks on autonomous vehicles. Next up, we've got U5B and everything you wanted to know but didn't know you needed to know about unemployment statistics in the BLS. And you're actually sticking around for this one, right? I am. I mean, you gave me a beer, so happy to hang out. All right. Let's talk unemployment. How many people are unemployed sounds like a simple question with a straightforward answer. Just go around and find out how many people don't have jobs, and you're done. As economists who study the issue will tell you, however, it's not that easy. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, a government agency charged with collecting data, has six separate measures of unemployment. And just in case you think we're splitting hairs, those different measures range from as low as 1.7 to as high as 8.5% last year. Since the way unemployment is measured and talked about can influence stock prices, elections, and how people generally feel about the economy on a day-to-day basis, it's important to understand what those different numbers mean. Luckily, we're joined by some folks who spend their time thinking about this stuff so you don't have to. Eric Morath is a labor economics and policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me. Michael Farron is an economist with the Mercatus Center who specializes in labor, economic development, and transportation issues. Welcome aboard, Michael. Thank you. Last but certainly not least, we have Kate Delanoy, Director of Media Relations at Mercatus. Thanks so much, Chad. So I want to start with a simple question. Why do we have six different measures of unemployment that range from the economy is better than it's ever been to we're approaching another economic collapse? Well, I'll jump in on that because it's economists' fault that we have (laughs) six different measures of unemployment. And the answer is that they all measure different sorts of things. The BLS classifies these uh, from U1 to U6. Uh, U3 is what we generally hear about. That's the headline unemployment rate. U1 measures the mid and long-term unemployed people. U3 simply adds in the short-term unemployed people to the U1 number. U2 is a little funny. It's kind of for uh, short-term layoffs. U4 is adds in people who are discouraged from pursuing work to the U3 number. And the discouraged workers are a subset of marginalized workers or marginalized job seekers in general. And they are essentially no longer pursuing work because of economic reasons, because they don't believe any jobs exist for them. U5 adds in the other part of marginalized job seekers, and these are people not pursuing work for non-economic reasons, like they're currently taking care of family or something like that. U6 adds in underemployed people to the U5 number. So I'm actually not a big fan of the U6 number because it mixes concepts. It counts someone who is underemployed as if they are fully unemployed. There you go. You know, I think it's important to think about that the numbers, you know, all are representing different things, but I wouldn't say that one is right or one is wrong. And I think that's sort of a misconception that we should really be looking at this or looking at that. I think, you know, some of them have longer time series and some of them give us a broader picture of the economy. But I think having a number of different ways to consider something is helpful for journalists and economists when trying to decide, you know, how much slack is in the labor market, how how tight are things, things like that. Who's defining underemployed? If somebody is choosing to work 20, 30 hours a week, are they considered underemployed? Or is that somebody who says, oh, I wish I was working 40 hours a week, but I can only get a job for 20 hours? 
It's the latter one. So all of this information that concerns unemployment comes out of the current population survey, which is a survey of around 60,000 households done every month by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it's one of the longest running labor surveys in the world and is one of the honestly the best conducted. It's one of the gold standards for doing this. And one of the things they ask people who are not working full time is, would you prefer to be full time? And if the answer is yes, then they are underemployed. If the answer is no, then no. I think that's a great question because sometimes I get feedback from readers that they think of underemployment as something different. They think of it as uh, the person that you know has a college degree but is working at Starbucks is underemployed. Well, if that person is working at Starbucks full time or they choose to work part time, you know they might not show up in this particular measure of underemployment. Uh, the tricky thing is it's a I think a lot harder for the government to measure, you know, if someone is performing, you know, below their education or training level. Absolutely. And that's actually one of the problems that I've had with the economics jargon that has emerged as we try to understand the labor market better, because this is very much a process of what economists like to call tanto mal. Uh, it's, I probably horribly mispronounced that. <laughs> but um, it's it's the French word for um, for groping, which sounds horrible, but it just means that like we're searching in the dark, trying to understand the labor market better. So the idea of underemployment got shifted to include people who are working below their education level, as well as people who would be wanting to work more than they currently are. And I would favor a more disambiguation of terms, something along the lines of an underutilization of education rather than a underemployment for those kind of people. And even thinking about that, you can get how hard that is to, to understand or think about, you know, not every college degree is equal. And someone who, you know, has a degree maybe in computer science from the 1970s might not have the latest skills and training if they haven't kept up with that. And so do you measure them equal to someone that, you know, just left, uh, you know, MIT or George Mason? Excellent point. Especially when you're writing about these issues, I'm kind of curious, because I know, Michael, you do a monthly jobs report. Eric, you're obviously reporting for a news outlet on these issues. When you're writing about unemployment from month to month or when a story comes up, how do you all kind of decide? What goes through your head when you're, when you're deciding which number to kind of highlight or, or which aspects of unemployment, the unemployment formula to, to focus on? Well, at the Wall Street Journal, we focus on the U3, that the you know traditional unemployment rate, and we do that for for two main reasons. One, at the heart, you know, we're writing for like investors, and that's what they know, and that's what they react to, that's what the market moves on. So that's one big reason. The other is that rate has been around since you know the late 1930s, so we can judge is the current unemployment situation like it was in the 1990s, the 1960s. And some of these other measures, we're talking about much shorter time spans. So certainly that U3 rate isn't perfect, but given that it's a long period of time, it gives people a good touch point. Oh, I remember how things were in the 1970s, and I can compare that to now. So what I actually try to do is support the work of journalists like Eric, and rather than give just the kind of the the upper level for the the readers that are interested in just the 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 headline unemployment number i try to go down into the bls data a little bit and explain what's going on with the deeper numbers in the hopes that i can help people understand the economy a little bit better 
One of the things that I think is interesting is that the numbers are updated for another two months after they come out. And so do you in your reporting or, you know, as you're looking at reports, do you ever see things and think, oh, that was a huge change from, you know, where we thought we were a month ago? And does that ever become the story or is the story always on the most recent top line number? You know, the most recent numbers tend to get the most attention, but that can change. Um, you know, I do remember, I think a couple of years ago, the first take of the report showed that the U.S. lost jobs. And it was the first time in, I think it was six or seven years that there had been a negative employment number. And so, th- so that was a huge story. And then it got revised. So the fact that it got revised that at that time, it got, okay, we're still actually on this streak, long streak of job creation. So that was a case where it was. Interestingly enough, the number of people who are in the non-farm payrolls number, that comes from a survey of businesses, and that tends to get updated each and every month. The unemployment rate can be updated, but that doesn't tend to, for, for maybe you could explain better, but that doesn't tend to move around as much as you know, the non-farm payroll number. Yeah, definitely. And the I remember that that instance that you cited, and it's kind of a, a lesson for don't don't jump too fast on the the most recent numbers because what they're doing is the the BLS is reporting seasonally adjusted numbers and the the raw data the, the unseasonally adjusted data is there as well but it's generally not reported because the important thing is is what given that it is springtime, given that it's summer and, and um, younger people are out of uh, school and looking for jobs, that sort of thing, what it, what would the employment be if this was the typical month as opposed to what month it currently is? And so that uh, seasonal adjustment requires additional months of data to go back and, and look forward and look back. And so that's the reason why you're having that follow-up adjustments later on. And something like that sort of happened earlier this year too, where I think it was March that had relatively lower numbers than the uh, February or March that had relatively lower numbers than the other months leading up to it. And when they went back and revised the numbers, they found like, oh, employment didn't Employment growth didn't dip nearly as much as we thought it had. It's just a, one of those things of, again, we're, we're trying to understand the labor market better, and it is a very unwieldy, uh, difficult thing to, uh, to understand. It's, uh, you could liken it to uh, driving into a snowstorm and <laughs> trying to count all of the snowflakes hurtling toward your car simultaneously. One thing people don't always uh, know to get a little bit in the weeds is that there's the, the jobs report is based on two separate surveys, uh, one of businesses, essentially employers, and another of, of households. And so it's the, the unemployment rate comes from that household survey and the non-farm payroll comes from the business survey. And so there's been times where the unemployment rate can fall and you would assume that would coincide with a significant rise in employment. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't happen. So... You know, these numbers month to month, you know, only kind of tell you a little bit of the story. Looking at the longer term trend, you know, gives you a better direction, sign of the direction the economy is going. I'm glad you mentioned that last point because I think one of the first, and I don't know how many years ago this was, but one of the first jobs report that ever caught my interest and made me interested in this topic was a situation where the unemployment rate, whatever it was at the time, went down as it was reported. And then I saw everyone get really upset. And then I started reading about this thing called labor force participation rate. And it was like, the unemployment rate's going down. I should be happy. But it's because labor force participation's changed. So it's a mirage. Can you guys kind of walk me through why that can happen, what labor force participation rate is? Yeah. So the labor force participation rate is the share of the population that 
is either working or looking for work. And that's a really important topic right now because the unemployment rate is pretty much matching its lowest level since the 1960s. But the share of the population that's working or looking for work is actually well down from a peak, I think, in the late 1990s. So that might suggest to you that there's some people out there either maybe would want a job, but they're not actually working, looking for work, or we have an older population, you know, not that many 80-year-olds are participating in the labor force, but we have a lot more 80-year-old adults now than we did 20 years ago. And I think that's actually part of the reason why it's important to like dig into beneath the surface of these numbers, that because if you look at simply the prime working age from 25 to 54, which would generally exclude a lot of people that are retiring and and the baby boomers that are affecting these numbers, because the labor force participation rate includes everyone age 16 and over. And the, you know, chunk of population that is the baby boomers that's starting to retire is starting to drive that down, even though baby boomers work at higher rates as they're older more than any other previous generational group. But we've recovered with the labor force participation rate back to about where we were before the Great Recession, but we haven't gotten back to the highs of the late 1990s. And the other thing about the labor force participation rate is that what it does is it counts the people who are actively working and actively seeking work. And that's part of the the issue about the, the U3 headline unemployment rate is that to be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively seeking work and currently available to actually start work. Th- those are the parameters. And so that is why you have those other unemployment rates, U4 and U5, because they pick up people that haven't looked for work within the last four weeks. That's their definition of actively seeking work. Have you actually done some sort of activity that could result in you being offered a job within the last four weeks. So passively searching LinkedIn doesn't count as being actively seeking employment. You actually have to submit an application, for example. But you also have to be currently available to take a job, which might not apply to some of the people who are currently working uh, or looking for work, like uh, high school or college students that are getting ready to graduate. And they may be affecting employer's perception of what the labor market is by actively looking for work. But because they're still doing classes, they may not be immediately available to take a job. And going toward, this is kind of like a good segue for research that I've done, and I'm sort of carrying the torch for Scott Winship, an economist at the Joint Economic Committee, who did uh, some research and created what he calls the U5B, and what I'm describing as the comprehensive unemployment rate. Because it covers everyone who says they want a job, regardless of conditions. And so it's the highest that you could say the unemployment rate possibly is. And it adds one additional layer of understanding to the labor market. And the benefit of the comprehensive jobless rate is that over the last two months, we've seen the exact situation that we just described happen, where the unemployment rate has ticked down, but the labor force participation rate has simultaneously ticked down. And that's a point where you say, well, is the unemployment rate declining because people are just exiting, actively looking for work? Or is it declining because people are actually getting jobs? 
And because the comprehensive jobless rate counts everyone who says they want a job, regardless of whether or not they're actively looking for work right now or not, and the fact that the comprehensive jobless rate has also declined those last two months, which if people were just leaving the labor force because they were discouraged, you would expect the comprehensive jobless rate to be increasing rather than decreasing. We can say that we're pretty sure that this decline in unemployment is because people are finding more jobs, not because they're getting discouraged and leaving the labor market. I think that's really interesting and it kind of leads to a point in terms of, you know, you're talking about this new measurement that Scott and you have been working on. And I look at the labor force now and it looks very different than when my parents, you know, when I was a kid watching my parents go to work. You know, a lot of my friends too, you know, they want to do things part-time. They want schedules where they, you know, maybe work for six hours during the day, go pick up kids and then come back online and are working, you know, different hours, maybe at the same job, maybe at a different job. And do you think that the BLS and the way they conduct their surveys and gather data, is there going to have to be some sort of change to capture this shift in how we're working? Or is this system that they've got there going to be able to record all of the people and count the ways that we are working? Yeah. And one of the criticisms of the BLS system is that it sort of optimized for like a 1960s economy where a lot of people worked manufacturing jobs and you'd measure people that work overtime. And, you know, now there's been, of course, a shift towards the service sector, towards salaried employment. So, yeah, I think there are some questions about should there be different ways to measure this. And so a few weeks ago, the BLS put out a survey called the Contingent Worker Survey, and, and I and a lot of other reporters and maybe economists were pretty excited that we're going to see this. We thought, oh, we're going to finally find out what's going on. <laughs> Who's working for Uber? Who's a gig worker? And we were kind of disappointed that it didn't really show much change from the previous time they did the survey over a decade ago. But one of the things that got to is just the point you brought up. Well, they only asked, were you doing this sort of contingent, temporary gig work as your main job? So that probably missed a whole swath of people that are doing this as a secondary job or tying together three or four gigs into a full-time job. So I think BLS recognizes that there's a need to kind of capture this data. And certainly economic researchers have tried to tackle this issue as well. But yeah, there's still some, some more work to do for sure. Yeah. And that's probably a primary challenge for the BLS going forward is as the economy adapts to new realities and and platform firms being a nexus where people needing services can go to the platform firm to find someone willing to provide those services like Uber or like uh, eBay or any sort of firm that acts as a go-between. The nature of work is changing because the transactional cost to actually engage with someone else to provide work for you is also changing. This digs into what uh, Ronald Coase, a Nobel Prize winner, went into one of his most famous papers is the theory of the firm. And it digs into why do companies make some sort of services for their employees or their production process in-house and why do they farm some of it out? And the answer is, is it depends upon the cost of doing so. And after the rise of fax machines, you saw a major rise and the contract, the contract employment of other companies contracting with smaller companies to provide services for them. And with the rise of smartphones and the internet and platform firms, that has enabled, again, a further outsourcing away of, you know what, uh, you can treat the family as a firm. And 
I don't feel like cooking dinner tonight, so I'm going to pick up the phone. And if it's the 1980s, I'm going to call Domino's. Or if it's uh, the 20 teens, I'm going to pick up my smartphone and I'm going to contact Uber Eats. Kind of on this theme of, you know, the economy is not like it was in the 1960s. One of the other big labor force mysteries that we've been groping about in the dark for has been the sort of disappearance of what we've traditionally considered men in kind of their prime working years from the labor force participation rate. I don't know if you guys have covered this or, or written about it or had any thoughts, but I feel like that's the, the issue that I keep seeing written about that I, I haven't really seen anyone say, aha, we figured it out. Yeah, I agree with you that it's a big mystery. You know, lots of different things I've seen point it to. The opioid crisis being one of them, the higher instances of disability. Uh, we've seen that sort of turnaround in recent years, but certainly from 1980 to a few years ago, a rise in people on disability. I mean, I've even seen studies suggesting that, you know, men are content to play video games and <laughs> therefore aren't in the labor force. So that is a big question, you know, why that is. And, but it speaks to a limiting factor on the economy's overall ability to grow. If people, aren't interested in working, especially when they're kind of in those prime 25 to 54-year-old age range, it's going to be hard to grow the economy. Yeah. And so the, the real question that that gets at, this is like a fundamental, really interesting question, is should we be growing the economy if it's at the cost of human welfare? If someone is happier actually sitting on the couch and playing video games or, or what have you, then is essentially creating programs that push them into work actually helping them or not? I think you could make a pretty strong argument that it would long term, but it's, it's a fascinating kind of philosophical question to ask yourself. Uh, regarding the disability angle, this is actually uh, – Scott Winship I mentioned earlier with the, the JEC has done a couple papers with Mercatus on this exact thing. So over the last 50 years, this is uh, po information from the uh, current population survey. The number of prime age men between the tw ages of 25 and 54 who say that they are disabled. Now, this is a different meaning of disabled than normal. It's, so this doesn't mean that you're blind or that you're in a wheelchair. This is the BLS CPS, current population survey definition of disabled, is that you are unable to perform work for the next six months. You're too ill or, or, or what have you. The number of men who've said that they are too disabled to perform work for the next six months has tripled over the last 50 years. And that's really surprising given that we have seen decreases in workplace injuries and general increases in human health excluding obesity problems. And that doesn't even factor into a lot of these disability issues. So the underlying question is, why has disability increased when uh, it should have decreased? And what Scott finds is that as essentially social safety net programs have increased in their accessibility and their generosity, that it may have incentivized people to not work because the way these programs are designed is that if you work, you start losing the very benefits that you were given for it. So it's, he suggests at the end that maybe what we need is a redesign of the programs so that people are not penalized for working because we're losing a lot of uh, human knowledge and experience uh, when somebody who, say, is 40 years old temporarily goes on disability and then never actually goes back into the workforce. There's 
you know, lots of younger workers that are missing out on that experienced workers mentorship that they could otherwise have. I think one thing that I'd add to that, and I've certainly seen a lot of that research and find it very interesting is that we've had, again, to the change in nature of work. If you can get off a disability and you could go work for, say, an, what, like an old line manufacturer, you could get a job at GE and you work that for 30 years, you're talking a pension, healthcare, you're kind of set up for life. Now the reality is you come off a disability and keep in mind, disability benefits are a lot of times indexed to inflation. So you kind of guaranteed a small raise every year versus you go work a minimum wage job. The minimum wage job's not stable. You could have it for six months, lose it for six months. You might not see a raise for several years. That's a big incentive to stay on the disability program and just get that you know 2% raise or so every year, then kind of go through periods where you might work for six months and not work for six months. I think it's interesting, and I think it's something that we as a, as a country and a society are going to have to really think through because if we have a system where it makes sense and for somebody to get – and they're able to get more money on disability than they would be going and getting a minimum wage job or you know, as they're coming off of disability, things like that, how do we want to reconcile that? How do we want to make sure that there's that strong safety net there for people who need it but also, you know, as you said, not penalizing people for looking to get back into the workforce. One of the other problems along this line is that often Medicaid is accompanying these benefits. And so if you lose the disability benefits, you might well lose the insurance coverage that you have as well. One of the other things that I kind of want to bring up, and we're coming to a close here, so we don't have a ton of time to address this, at least as, as, certainly not as much as we probably should. But, you know, Eric, you mentioned something earlier about kind of the changing nature of the workforce, uh, particularly in the service sector, kind of replacing what we thought of as those manufacturing jobs. And you've written recently about a, a labor shortage in some of these areas, particularly in kind of the hospitality restaurant sphere. So it's kind of fascinating to me to think about all the unemployment, all the the jobs discussions we've been having for the last several years, but we got to get people back to work. How do we get people to work? How do we bring the unemployment rate down? And now there are these interesting sectoral problems popping up where it's like we we can't find enough people to fill certain jobs. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about you know the restaurant industry in particular or maybe any other kind of sectoral oddities that, that you all see pop up in the labor market. I think it is important to think about. The reason I focused on that story about the restaurant industry is because I sort of view that as one of the, the starting points or bottom points of of the labor market. And as the unemployment rate is low and sort of running out of people that are actively seeking work, you're seeing industries like construction and manufacturing dipping into the hospitality industry and saying, hey, well, we have a $15 an hour job with benefits. Why don't you come work here instead of work at a fast food restaurant? So I think that's interesting to see how the labor shortage might move its way from uh, the bottom to the top. We've, we've long been expected, even in times when the economy has been a little bit rougher, we've seen it. Well, it's hard to get people like computer programmers or even like welders, people that have like a lot of skills, that's always sort of been an area of shortage. But now we're starting to see the shortage of the lowest skilled workers because they're being pulled up and sometimes trained for, you know, higher value jobs. You could argue that that's actually a major success story of the current economy, that if restaurants can't find workers, that must mean that they have better options elsewhere. Right. And so the interesting thing about this, though, is I read, can't remember where I read this the other day, but the idea that factory jobs back in the late 1800s were were not good things, good places to be. They may have been better than the alternative of working out on, on the farm in a rural area. You're actually able to, to get ahead a little bit and, and to create a better life for your family and your kids growing up. But it was a very difficult environment. 
And then fast forward 75 years later, and a factory job is the best thing that a low-skilled person could get. We may be going through a similar sort of dynamic where food service is a difficult industry to be in. And we may be shifting toward as more automation comes in to food service to a better environment for workers, um, you know, 20, 40 years into the future. Yeah. Part of that story was talking about getting people away from the grill and getting away from the hard kind of manual jobs and out to what might be a more comfortable job, but they need skills for that job. You need to have customer service skills. You need to, most parts of this country have very good English skills. Increasingly need to have some basic math skills to to figure out, you know, issues the customer has or what's the best special for them, things like that. And not just, you know, repeat these same three steps to fry the fries. You know what? Come to think of it, I think it was actually your story that I was remembering. (laughs) (laughs) Good. That was not a setup, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Well, you know, I always like to, in these conversations, try to force you all or trick you all into saying something positive so that we can end an economics discussion on a positive note, which is so often difficult to do. So I think we're going to wrap up there. We're right about out of time. Um, I do want to thank our our, our guests for joining, and I want to make sure our listeners can keep up with your work after they're done listening to the show here. So I guess I'll just start with Michael and, and let our listeners know where they can follow you. Well, you can definitely find me at Mercatus.org, which is uh, the Mercatus website, obviously. And I uh, do a lot of blogging on the bridge. And you can find me on Twitter at Michael D. Farron. Eric Morath, and certainly can look for my work on uh, WSJ.com. We still do print a paper newspaper, so (laughs) go ahead and find that on newsstands, the analog edition. Uh, And I'm on Twitter at, at Eric Morath. And I'm Kate Delanoy, and I'm at Kate Delanoy on Twitter. Um, But I would also just encourage you to check out the Mercatus Twitter feed. I work with a lot of our different scholars here, and uh, David Beckworth is doing a lot of really interesting things on monetary policy and bigger economic questions. So I'm going to go ahead and plug him on Twitter and his podcast, Macro Musings, because it's just an interesting way to look at the world. Definitely. Thank you all. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese, or feel free to shoot me an email at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu with all your questions, complaints, and episode ideas. Thanks for joining, and thanks to our listeners, and we'll see you next time.